Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. What great singing this morning. I'm encouraged by your singing today. What a great offering to God. It's interesting, isn't it? Our worship service, there's, there's this tension between all we do is an offering to God. It's all for Him. It's His glory. We're praising Him. We're singing unto Him. But there's also that sense in which when we worship, we're encouraging one another. And of course, that's what Hebrews 10 is telling us. Do not forsake the assembling together of ourselves. It's a matter of some is. But encourage one another and all the more since the day is approaching. And so our singing, yes, it is unto God, but it's an encouragement as brothers and sisters as we sing praises and songs of thanksgiving unto our great God. Thank you for encouraging me this morning. The church's responsibility to its leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's stand and we'll begin reading in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those whose labor is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. You may be seated. And join with me in prayer. Father, we're blessed today to know that as we meet as your people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you're present, present in a very special way. And this morning, we've, we've lifted up our voices and singing praises to you. We believe we were put here on earth to praise you, to glorify you. And this morning, we have, we have enjoyed you. And we pray now as we continue worshiping that your word would speak loud and clear to us. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. Speak to your people. Equip your church to do the work you've given us here on earth of making disciples. We submit. We surrender. We surrender all to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In some ways, again, we find this tension. This book of 1 Timothy is in large part to a pastor and how to lead the church. And so you get that element. What should the church look like? What should they believe? What should they do? When you read chapters 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul just expressly says that. That you, I'm writing this so that you'll know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. But then there's that other side of, well, what's the church's responsibility to the leadership? How then do they come alongside and work together? And I think we find both of those elements within this book, and this morning particularly, the church's responsibility to its leaders. 
A new podcast came out recently uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. How many of you have listened to any of that podcast? Okay, seeing uh, one, two, two hands. I, I commend it to you. If you want to see and hear some of the inside story of a mega church, it's Rise and Fall, the church in Mars Hill in Seattle. It's, it's a great podcast. At times you may laugh, at times you will cry as you see the inner workings and what was going on in the life of that church. I wrote this introductory statement before I listened to any of the episodes. They've dropped four episodes, and I listened to the first, and I had to keep listening. So I caught up on all four episodes. It's just such an intriguing, interesting uh, story of, how, of, of one church. And so I wrote this introductory statement, leaders get in trouble when they operate without accountability. You'll find if you go back and you listen to those episodes that the senior pastor called out a staff member and and said about her that she was heretical because she indicated it would be good for for the senior pastor to have other men speaking into his life. What a wise statement. What a good statement. What a biblical statement. And it's hard to put those two together to think anything like that would be heretical. But what we find 18 years later after enormous growth at that particular church, Mars Hill fell completely apart and is no longer in existence. Because that particular senior pastor did not take that counsel, much less let any other people speak in to his life. Dave Harvey, in a book uh, called The Plurality Principle, emphasizes the Bible's teaching on a plurality of leadership, that it's not just one person who's making all the decisions and doing all without anybody holding him accountable at all. And this is what he writes in his book, every pastor needs other men in his life who know him, encourage him, pray for him, and understand his patterns of temptations where his desires are drawn towards soul-defiling pursuits. One of the key discipleship tools that we're implementing here at Lawndale with our men is a book or a series of three books called Every Man a Warrior. In book one, the book that describes what it really looks like to walk with God, how to listen to God through his word, and how to talk to God through prayer, he he asked this question, and really the, the lesson's title is, Why Men Fail? Why Men Fail? And he begins by talking about how Christian leaders have fallen. And you guys, you're aware of this. We've heard all the big names. We've seen a lot in the news of so many Christian leaders uh, falling. And so he identifies uh, why that's happened and many surveys have been given and many interviews have taken place and the number one reason that Christian leaders fall is because they stopped having their quiet time and that's instructive for us all isn't it we're not regularly listening to God growing in our love relationship with him through the word then it it goes on it leads us to think that we're going to end up in a wrong place. So they stopped having their quiet time. The second thing that was found among those leaders who had fallen is that they had no one to hold them accountable. 
Nobody was really asking them the tough questions. There was not at least a circle of leaders who were pushing in and asking even the uncomfortable questions. I I love that among our staff that we're able to ask each other some of the tougher questions and we can begin to ask each other, okay, over the last seven days, how many days did you have your quiet time? We need that. We, we've got to have a plurality of leaders like an elder team, like our pastors are presently serving as, so that we're holding each other accountable, we're praying for each other, and we're asking the tough questions. And of course, the third reason that Berger gives in his Every Man a Warrior book is because they began to meet with women behind closed doors. In other words, they began to put themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, not taking into account that they're weak and they're sinners and they're likely to fail when they put themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. I remember as a parent really feeling bad because my kids would ask me to do certain things and some of the things they would ask I would not feel very comfortable about. I would, I would think, you know, I think they're probably going to get in trouble if they go there and they do that, if they hang out with this person and they go there, they're, they're sinners. They're probably going to get in trouble. And so you know what the answer is when you say, you know, I just don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that that's a good place for you to go. You know what the answer is? Well, you don't trust me, do you, Dad? And you feel all the weight of the guilt. And, and it didn't take me long to, to realize there was a good answer to that question. You're right, I don't trust you. (laughs) But now there needs to be that follow-up behind it too, right? I don't trust you, but I don't trust myself. That's why I don't go and do certain things and put myself in the wrong place because I know that I'm a sinner, wrong place, wrong time. All of us are capable of wrong things. Accountability, it's important. Paul, in this particular part of the letter, and really all through the letter, puts in place guidelines for how the church can hold its pastors accountable. He starts first with this idea of supporting them. That's the first responsibility of the church. And then we'll get to the accountability piece in just a minute. So first point this morning, provide for them as they lead. That's the first responsibility of the church for its leaders. Provide for them as they lead. Look with me again in verse 17. Let the elders, and we've talked about this group of people, this plurality, all through the letter. Chapter 3 gives us qualifications for that. Chapter 4 talks about the council of elders. It's a group of men who are leading the church. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. So if a church is going to provide for their leaders, it's going to provide support. The the phrase double honor has two meanings to it. One is respect. And all through Scripture, we get this idea of respect for leaders. We know that the Bible is telling us in the home that parents are to be honored, honored and obeyed. It's the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. It's... No, it's foundational to our culture. It's foundational to our society. It's foundational to a healthy home that children are required to honor and obey their parents. And we see it in culture. As children grow up, those kids who learn how to honor their moms and dads learn how to respect the authorities in their lives. Whether they're police officers, whether they're governors, whether they're presidents, it doesn't matter. We respect authority because we believe that God has ordained authority in our culture. In the same way in the church. 
The church has leaders, and God has ordained that, and God has called people to lead in certain roles, and especially that group of elders. Support them, double honor, respect, but also remuneration. Also, there is that which is required for their daily living, for their lives. And so some people might say, well, why, why should we give our pastors a salary? Well, they like eating, for one. And in this text, it's, it's communicating that. And in another letter, hold your place here, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's even more clearly laid out that the church does this. It's why we do this. It's why we function like we do When you look in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, Paul said, Do I say these things in human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, and he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. For is is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I'll admit to you a little bit as a pastor who's preaching from this text this morning, it's a little bit uncomfortable to say, you guys, you need to make sure you're paying me a salary. But in general, we get that from the text. And by the way, let me just say thank you for your generosity toward our staff. We feel very blessed to serve at Lawndale, and you take care of your pastors. We firmly are able to do the work that God's called us to do because of the graciousness and the generosity and the giving of the members at Lawndale. I look back over uh, the pandemic And when the doors of the church were closed, even though I wasn't the pastor here, I saw the giving of the people and how that's just continued right on. And you guys, you've taken seriously the responsibility to take care of the work of the Lord and and the people who are serving the Lord in a full-time capacity. And we're grateful for that. The person who leads, the elders who rule well, will be considered worthy of double honor. Now, the text seems to indicate that maybe there will be some that serve as elders who aren't necessarily devoting themselves fully to the preaching and teaching task. Because here he says, especially uh, those who labor, and it is a labor. Sometimes people say, man, what do you do as a pastor? You just sit in your office and read books all the time? Well, that, that is part of the work. It's a labor of studying the Word and learning and growing and preparing so that we can feed and lead. Now, that's not all that we do, but it is a part of what we do. And it's a labor. It's blood, sweat, and tears. And just like anyone who's working any kind of job, pastors work hard and sweat. Uh, It may not be the same kind of work. We all have different jobs and different callings. But it's, it's a hard work. It's a labor field work. Even so much so that just like in the beginning when God called all people to work, work is a gift from God. 
it becomes a little bit more difficult at times because we live in a fallen world. That's why there is the sweat. That's why sometimes there are the thorns. Maybe we could even associate Paul in 2 Corinthians, the thorn in the flesh. But there are difficulties and dilemmas that come along with all work. But it's a, it's a labor, and it's a labor of love. It's a calling from God to have that, that calling of preaching and teaching. So support uh, them as they lead, and part of that's providing support. The second part of this is provide a standard. You provide support as a church, but you also provide a standard. When he's talking about these elders in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5, he says, who rule well. How do you rule well? How do you lead? How do you manage? How do you get out in front and, and then at the same time stand with and bring along a whole congregation of people? How do you rule well? Now, it is interesting that he calls this a ruling well. Uh, and when you think about a standard, well, we have to first think of character. You're not, you can't rule well if you're not practicing what you're preaching. Pastors are expected to set an example. That's why the qualifications are given in chapter 3. Someone who is blameless, above reproach, someone who's walking with God, not perfect. We know no man is perfect. No man is to be put on a pedestal. But we do know they provide an example. And so uh, the church is saying we're holding our pastors to the standard. These are the qualifications and these uh, uh, qualifications speak to the kind of pastors that we desire to have in our local assembly at Lawndale. As you go through all of those qualifications in chapter 3, verse 7, they fit under that rubric of above reproach. And we studied through that the kind of man he is in, in regard to his wife, a one-woman man, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Sounds like God puts a great emphasis on the character of leaders, elders, pastors. And the church would do well to put that kind of emphasis on character as well. Interestingly, I have a book written by Paul Tripp called Dangerous Calling. It's a great book. If you uh, want to read some about what's expected of leaders or the dangers that leaders face, I, I commend it especially to, to Christian leaders. But as I, as I looked at my first edition, and many editions have come out since then, but my first edition, I looked on the back cover, and there are five pastors who recommend this to the rest of the world to read. Interestingly, three of those five had moral failures and have left the ministry since the first printing of that book. Doesn't it say something about the culture around us? And maybe even something about the lack of standard that we're really providing and the accountability that we're providing for our leadership. Now, none of us want a call every day from every member. Are you living up to your... How are you doing on the... But that's what that plurality of elders is for. And of course the church 
is the one who helps put those kind of leaders together and affirms those kind of leaders. I would say one of the, one of the big problems in the church today is not that our homes aren't doing what they should. I think that's a problem. It's not even that church members aren't necessarily doing what they should, although that can be a problem. I would say it's more we pastors. Now, I'm not saying necessarily Lawndale pastors. We've got room to grow. We've got a lot of work to do, and we're going to keep working, and we're going to keep growing. I commit that to you as uh, the lead pastor. But I'm saying in general that we've set the bar way low when it comes to leaders within the church body. God doesn't do that. God, God's put requirements here. And, and God has even said through Paul in chapter 5 that there, there is this vision of elders who will rule well. That's what we're after. That's what we're aiming for. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp says this a little bit more specifically. We should care about, pray for, and do all we can to work toward the constant progressive spiritual growth of our pastors. We should not assume that it has taken place. Shouldn't we assume that the presence and power of remaining sin lives inside of every pastor? If you're a pastor, do you live above or outside of the body of Christ? It's a pretty strong statement. I I take it personally. And I want our staff, we're taking this personally. We want to be the men that God's called us to be. I'll assure you that none of us will be a model of perfection, but we do strive to be a model of progression, showing what it looks like to walk with God and to grow in a relationship with God. God's called us to that, and we, can, we cannot give God any less than that. Now, they will rule well. I I think part of that is in their character. They're practicing what they're preaching. They're living up to the qualifications that God has given in His Word, but also to the work of pastoring itself. So not only a biblical view of character, but a biblical view of their work. Churches should have a standard uh, that they provide, or they should provide uh, support, they should provide a standard, Uh, And in that standard, a biblical view of character and a biblical view of their work. It's kind of like a job description. What what do pastors do? I I would say to you, one of the number one things a pastor should be responsible to do is to pray. When we look at Acts 6-4 and what we think is the beginning of the position of deacons and what they're doing, the apostles said, let's let the deacons take care of a lot of the details and ministry Uh, details of caring for people and widows in particular so that we don't neglect the ministry of prayer and the word. That's a part of the job description. I, I don't think any job description should ever be written for any pastor that doesn't include prayer in there. That's biblical. That's what's expected. Now, obviously our goal is to be in constant conversation and communion with God all day long, every day, 24-7. But none of us are able to do that perfectly. So those timed prayers, intentional prayers, even even in content, certain agendas in prayer should be planned. It should be a part of the weekly job that a pastor does. Prayer. If a pastor is not a praying pastor, 
then he's relying on his own strength to do the work that God's given him. And that will never be what God intends for it to be. Pastors must be praying. That's a part of our job description. We're asking God to do what we cannot do. We're living in communion with God so that we can exemplify what a walk with God is, but we're also praying about specific things within the life of the church. Praying for ministries, praying for direction, praying for wisdom in making decisions. Prayer is key to the work. But also ministry of the word, as Acts 6-4 indicates. We've spoken about Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. God has given the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Even in this book, when you look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, the one glaring qualification for elders that's not in the deacon list is that he's able to teach. He should be involved in teaching ministry. Sometimes that's in the large group, the congregation, teaching and preaching. Sometimes it's in a small group. And it also certainly should include one-on-one discipleship. It's ministry of the Word. Ministering the Word means that we need to know the Word, study the Word, prepare to teach the Word, and, and properly hold the truths of the Word. It's a ministry of the Word. Even when you look over into Paul's next letter, you see him telling Timothy pretty specifically in chapter 2, verse 2, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's a multiplying teaching ministry. And then even over in Titus chapter 1, notice the qualifications given uh, to Titus for the elders. He makes this one a little bit more explicit and explains a little bit more this holding sound doctrine. But Titus 1 verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's ministry of the word. It's part of the job description. And then the third thing I would say, if we're going to have a biblical view of their work, is shepherding the flock. 1 Peter chapter 5 is another one of those passages that gives us qualifications for elders, leaders, pastors within the church And we can read a lot of this, but primarily verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And of course, I'm focusing on that shepherd the flock of God, love the people of God. Jesus died for his church. He died for a people that could be adopted into his family and we're shepherding, we're leading, we're feeding, we're teaching, we're guiding spiritual growth, we're generating spiritual fruit, we're guarding spiritual health. That's what shepherding is. And he means for pastors, elders to do that kind of work. So church, you're responsible to provide for leaders, pastors, elders as they lead, support and a standard Secondly, you're to protect them as they lead. Notice verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. When you protect your pastors, you're protecting them from accusations. Have you ever had someone that you've seen who has been falsely accused of something and it just rocked their world for periods of time? maybe even for the rest of their lives. 
we must be careful in making accusations about anybody, and especially our leaders. And in particular, in our text, he said, don't even entertain a charge, an accusation against an elder, except on the evidence. There's got to be evidence. This is not just hearsay. This is not just something that we've thought or some kind of subjective feeling, but it's the evidence, and it's of two or three witnesses. So there is a problem of false accusations that can happen within any place, whether it's a place of business, whether it's a church family, whether we're anywhere. And the church is to protect pastors in that sense. I'm not exactly sure what Alexander did that hurt Paul so much. I I would think that in part it, it may have been something like this, but when you look in 2 Timothy 4, in verse 14, Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So I'm not exactly sure what that great harm was, but I would say making false accusations is great harm. And when that happens, uh, we should take seriously uh, what accusations are being made. So protect pastors as they lead from accusations. So you see the problem of false accusations. Well, what about the problem of unrepentant sin? What if the accusation is true? I would like to think if one of us pastors has made a mistake, we've sinned against someone, that when we're confronted with that, we would apologize, confess, and repent. But what if what if that pastor doesn't? What if they're, uh, as the text would say, what if they persist in sin? He said, uh, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, we're looking and tying this in somewhat to Matthew 18. Somebody offends you, you go to them and you try to work it out. If you can't, then you take two or three witnesses with you. And if you can't work it out, then you tell it to the whole congregation. There's a sense in which we look at church discipline and we know that if someone persists in sin, that there should be discipline. We should address that. Even to the point that if someone was not repentant, that their membership would even be removed. And so somebody says, well, what about pastors? Do you think a pastor should ever be fired? Well, first, please don't fire me. (laughs) And I don't know of any of our pastors that need to be fired, by the way. But I would say definitely yes. There are times when a, when a person needs to be let go, whether whatever terminology we want to use, firing or let go, if they persist in sin. There should be discipline that's applied to that. We're, we're, we're looking at the church, we're looking at the bride of Christ, and the leaders are huge when it comes to the bride of Christ, not only in the way they live, but in the way they lead. And there has to be accountability. Part of the damage that's been done in the church generally across America is due to a lack of accountability. I'll come back here to Paul Tripp, and I'm not exactly sure whether to give him credit for this statement that has evolved in my own mind and heart. I tried to go to his book, What Did You Expect?, a book on marriage, because I I think somehow, even if he didn't say it like this, I gleaned this truth from him years ago, but... If he didn't say it, I'm not blaming him. But if he did say it, I'm giving him credit. But it came out to me something like this, that if you're not regularly 
apologizing and repenting, you're not seeing yourself accurately. You're a sinner. And so in your home, you're going to mess up regularly. If you're not apologizing and repenting regularly, you're not seeing yourself accurately. As a pastor, I'm going to mess up regularly. You're going to ask me to do something, and I'm, I'm going to forget. I'm going to not get it done, or I'm going to renege, whatever that looks like, and I'm going to have to apologize. I'm sorry. I'll let you down. I may speak to someone in a, in a firmer voice than what I should have. I, I tried to make myself even sound good in that moment, right? Instead of harsh or mean, in a firm voice. Maybe I've spoken in a way that hurts someone's feelings. But I, I would need to repent of that. I would need to apologize for that. We, we're going to need to do that. If a church family is going to be healthy... We've got to model that at a leadership level. If your home's going to be healthy, if mom and dad never apologize, how can you ever expect your kids to learn how to apologize? How do you expect them to ever see their own sin when you don't see your sin? And in the church body, if we're not apologizing and repenting, then we're not modeling that and we're not seeing ourselves accurately. Hopefully... We're apologizing less and repenting less as we grow, but still, we're not going to be like Jesus until we see him face to face. When it comes to accusations, there also is the problem of prejudging and partiality. Did you pick that up in verse 21? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Sometimes when somebody messes up, it's, it's like we've prejudged them and saying, well, I always knew he was going to be a bad dude or a bad person. You know, we've, we've prejudged. And there's some subjective things because maybe he didn't do things like you like them. Maybe he talked with this southern accent that you just couldn't hardly absorb or whatever. We can come up with a bunch of preferences and opinions and personality things. That's not what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about when someone is disciplined or even confronted for sin, that it's sin, not preferences, not personalities. That's, that's going to be part of our fellowship as well. But what we're saying is no prejudging. You know, let, let someone's life be lived out. And it's certainly not with partiality. We, we could say, well, you know, I really like this guy a lot. And so I'm just not going to say anything about this problem. There's not, not any prejudging, but also not any partiality. we we got to call each other out. And we as a pastoral staff, we want to be open to that, being called out if we've offended someone or hurt someone or crossed a line or done something unbiblical or said something that's, that's not consistent scripturally. And one reason we want you to have that openness is that we want that openness too. Because as pastors and shepherds, we want to come alongside of you. If I'm doing something and heading down the wrong road, I want you to come and talk to me. I, I, I think the most loving thing you can do is if someone is sinning, is to help them. To come alongside of them and restore them. It's one of the most loving, kind things you could do. And whether we're pastors or members, we mutually want to encourage each other in that kind of way. Protect them from accusations, but also protect them from failures. 
there are a couple of things you can do as a congregation that will protect your pastors from failures. Notice in verse 22, this first kind of protection of failure is before someone becomes a pastor. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I think when a church calls a pastor, there should be a pretty intense interview process. When someone becomes a pastor, there should be an intense ordination process. We should be looking at the life of of a man. Is he living up to the qualifications? Have we called him out to the qualifications? Does he understand them? And then, how about his, uh, his walk with God? Is he spending time with God, growing in his relationship with God? Is he reading the Word? Is he in the Word? Is he a man of the Word? And then his doctrine, is he sound in his doctrine? And so even an ordination process, when someone comes up, I feel like God's calling me in ministry, we're, we want to make sure we're, we have a rigorous process in place to call men out and to raise them up so that they're prepared to serve the Lord and his church. So even before someone becomes a pastor, we want to make sure there's spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, and they're prepared. Lay, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, the affirmation of someone even being called into ministry. And then not only when someone, before they become a pastor, but after someone becomes a pastor. Do, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. There's a sense in which Timothy could have associated himself with other people who weren't ready to be pastors. In that sense, he's, he's guilty of association there. In some ways, it's like the larger church. Lawndale wants to cooperate with other churches, like-minded. If they're, if we want to come alongside of other churches that love God, that love his word, that teach the scriptures that are sound in doctrine. And we want to be a part of of a community like that because when we get to heaven, it's not going to just be about Lawndale. It's going to be about the the people of God. Now, what if there's a church that we come along that wants to partner with us in something and they believe false doctrine? Well, we're not going to partner with them. We want to be careful of our associations And Paul is even saying that to Timothy, keep yourself pure. That's not always easy when you have differing views and differing ideas, but it's important. I've struggled with that all throughout ministry. There there are times that we've had to say no to associations, to cooperating in an event because this was a church that was not teaching the Word of God. They were not following the Scriptures. But yet... If we're not careful, we close out those like-minded groups that we should be working alongside of to further the kingdom. Paul is telling Timothy, be careful not to lay hands on anybody too quickly because now in ministry for him, he he should keep himself pure. I think that's a good word for all of us, pastors and church members alike. Keep yourself pure. Keep walking with God. Keep studying the word. Grow in your faith. Be more tuned to the heart of God. Our our hearts are prone to wonder just as be thou my fount says. My heart's prone to wonder. It's important that we stay tuned in. 
keep yourself pure. Timothy was so concerned about his holiness and godliness that even though he was having stomach problems, he kept drinking the water. Now, I don't know if you've been on a mission trip before, but I've, I've been on a few. And one of the things that I hear often, especially when I go into certain areas, is don't drink the water. Because there's a lot of bacteria. There's a lot of things that can really make you sick. I, I came home from one mission trip with Deli Belly. And that's not any fun at all. In this sense, Paul is saying, Timothy, if there, if there is something that has medical help here, this, this wine that you could drink that would help your stomach problems, Timothy, take that. Now, I don't think this is necessarily an approval to say, guys, if you want to go out and drink all, you want to just go, go drink, you know? But I do think there's, there's this sense of if you've got a problem, medicine is okay. Have you ever met someone who was afraid to take any kind of medicine at all? I, I have. And he's saying, Timothy, that's, that's not what the purity is all about here. Your purity is in your walk with God, not if you need some medical treatment, medical help. And I, I think that's where the wine was coming in here for him, his frequent stomach problems that he was having. Now, let me, let me bring this to a conclusion. Pastors are God's representatives and servants. I would say to you parents, parents, you're God's representatives and servants in your homes. I, I, would often, I oftentimes tell a dad, you're the pastor of your household. And as we think about a church family, think about the fact that pastors are God's representatives and servants. We're not God... And don't automatically and immediately see the situation clearly. None of us do. Because none of us can see the past or the future. However, God will eventually make all things known. What I'm saying is, and I think what Paul is communicating as he brings all this together, is as you're walking together as a church family and you're following leadership, if a leader is leading you in the wrong way and is living an ungodly life, it'll eventually come out. Now, if you have a pastor who's living in sin, maybe he's consistently harsh. Maybe he's lazy. Maybe he's teaching a false doctrine. You should go to that pastor and have a conversation with him. And if he doesn't listen, that, that should be brought to the whole group of elders. That should be addressed that should be dealt with. And the sooner it's addressed, the better. Because the longer we wait, if we know something that's it's conspicuous, it's clear, it's visible, the longer we wait, the worse it becomes. You've, you've experienced that in your own life. There are things that you just wish would just go away and you never deal with them. And they just keep getting worse instead of getting better. There are issues that just have to be addressed. You go, it's conspicuous. But there are certain things that maybe it's just that you've got this feeling, but you don't know. Well, God will bring it out. Isn't that what the text says? The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Sin will eventually come out. Some of you have had some sin in your life that maybe you've been hiding. Maybe you've not dealt with. You know that God's been calling you to repent. 
Know that it's better today to repent and get help than to let that just keep going. The enemy will say to you, oh, don't worry about it. You'll get better. Don't worry about it. It'll go away. You'll, you'll grow out of it or you'll get over it or nobody will ever find out. And maybe it turns into 18 years like Mars Hill and things just implode. Whereas things could have been addressed a lot earlier and not had the kind of devastation that they experienced. Sin will eventually be found out. It, it will come out. God will bring all things to light. Now, he ends on a positive note in verse 25. So also good works are conspicuous. What you do that's when you're walking with God, it's, it just people see it. It's conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we try to do things and not let people know. Maybe we leave something. Maybe we give something. We try not to let our right hand know what our left hand's doing. And basically what Paul's saying, it'll, it'll come out. The kind of life you're living and what you're doing, if you're walking with the Lord, you don't have to worry about sounding the trumpet or letting everybody, God will eventually bring it out because it's for his glory. Now, think about those good works for just a minute. I challenged you on hidden sin. Now let me challenge you on good works for a, a moment. Believers can do works that are eternal, that are credited for the glory of God forever. That's the kind of good works that we're talking about here. Now, unbelievers, people who don't follow Christ, can do some good things, but they're not the kind of good works that are eternal. They're not making a difference for the kingdom of God. Uh, nobody can do good works that will earn them favor with God. Ephesians 2, 8 puts it pretty clearly, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our salvation is a free gift. We come to a place where we realize, I'm a sinner. What, what grace is there and that God allows us to see that we're sinful? He allows us to see that we are deserving of wrath and punishment. That's the grace of God who is awakening us so that we can have faith and place our faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross and the resurrection. It's that kind of transformation of someone placing their faith in Christ by the grace of God that leads to the kind of good works that are being described here in chapter 5. Because Paul goes on to say that, doesn't he? In Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're actually starting to do what God put us here on earth to do. That's what, he, that's what he intended when he created us, to know him, to walk with him, to enjoy him, and to glorify him. And these good things that we do, they bring glory to his name. Now what about you this morning? Is there anything hidden that God is saying, deal with it? Maybe this week it's a call to one of your leaders, one of your pastors to say, I'd like to talk with you about something in my life. Bringing it to the light. Having a shepherd, a help, someone to come alongside of you and shepherd you through that thing that God's been dealing with you about. Maybe some have just not been involved in the good works. Uh, coming out of a shutdown for a season... I love the fact that God gives us the opportunity to look ahead now and say, God, what are you calling me to do? What do you want me to give my life to? How do you want to use me? 
There's so many ways that God wants to work in your life. And if we're not careful, we can sit back and we can wait and we can miss months and years of doing good works that would bring glory and honor to God. God's calling. Will you listen? Father, as we come before you, we do so humbly because we know we come short of your glory but we also come thankfully because of the shed blood of Christ, the forgiveness that we know because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. We know that it's that price that was paid that brought about a church like Lawndale. And we want our church to be worthy of that kind of sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We want to live in the power of the resurrection that, that Jesus offers to us. And so right now, I pray that you'd bring such strong conviction to this body that whatever sin is here, that you would convict us of it and that you'd give us the courage to confess and to repent from pastors all across the congregation to all of our members, Lord. We pray for that kind of repentance. And we pray, Father, that you'll allow us to do your good work. Let us know more and more why you put us here on earth and that we'll take up that mantle to make disciples of all the nations starting right here in our own neighborhood, right here in our own city. God, don't let us rest until we've done the work that you've given us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.